This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Li Pingchen, your host for today's episode. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Zhong Pingchen about his new book, Trans-Pacific Reform and Revolution, The Chinese in North America, 1898-1918. This book was published by Stanford University Press in 2023. The late 19th and early 20th centuries saw the turbulent end of China's imperial system, violent revolutionary movements, and the fraught establishment of a republican government. During these decades of reform and revolution, millions of far-flung overseas Chinese remained connected to Chinese domestic movements. This book uses rich archival sources and a network analysis approach to examine how reform and revolution in North American Chinatowns influenced political change in China, as well as the Trans-Pacific Chinese diaspora from 1898 to 1918. Historian Zhong Pingchen focuses on the transnational activities of Kang Youwei, Sun Yat-sen, and other politicians especially their mobilization of the Chinese in North America to join reformist and revolutionary parties in patriotic fights for a Western-style constitutional monarchy or for a republic in China. These new reformist and revolutionary parties, including the first Chinese women's political organization, led trans-Pacific movements against American anti-Chinese racism in 1905 and supported constitutional reform and the Republican Revolution in China around 1911, achieving trans-Pacific expansion through innovative use of cross-cultural political ideologies as well as intertwined institutional and interpersonal networks. Through network analysis of the origins, interrelations, and influences of Chinese reform and revolution in North America, this book makes a significant contribution to modern Chinese history, Asian American and Asian Canadian history, as well as Chinese diaspora scholarship. So this is a brief introduction about the book. Now let's hear from the author. Dr. Chen, welcome to the show. Thank you. <clears throat> so uh, Dr. Chen, before we talk about your amazing new books, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your affiliation, research interest, or anything you would like us to know? Uh, well, uh, I'm a professor of Chinese history and the history of global Chinese diaspora at the University of Victoria in Western Canada. Uh, I have research interests in socioeconomic history of later imperial China, or the Chinese history in the Ming and Qing dynasties uh, from 1368 to 1912. And uh, the global history of Chinese diaspora, especially the overseas Chinese history in North America. Uh, recently, I have developed a new research interest in the environmental history of China uh, during the so-called Little Ice Age from 1400 to 1900. Uh, my publications include uh, 
six books and more than 60 journal articles in English and Chinese, as well as my works on two websites. Uh, my six books include two English monographs. Uh, first one, Modern China's Network Revolution, uh, that was published by Stanford University Press in 2011. And the newly released book, Trans-Pacific Reform and the Revolution, the Chinese in North America, uh, which was also published by Stanford University Press in 2023. I also published one Chinese biography of a national hero of Ming China, called Yu Chen. Uh, Yu Chen saved China from the second wave of Mongol invasion in the mid 15th century. Uh, moreover, I edited one collection of Chinese essays on Zhenghe, the greatest navigator of Ming China, who led seven larger scale of maritime voyages to the Indian Ocean between 1405 and 1433. Uh, many popular publications uh, even claimed that his fleets also reached the Americas, but actually we have no evidence to prove that claim. Moreover, I led a, a group of scholars and students uh, together with the uh, community activists. Uh, we created a website, Victoria's Chinatown, a gateway to the past and the present of Chinese Canadians. Uh, I would say probably this is uh, the best uh, website on a North American Chinatown. Uh, you can find uh, this website by Googling uh, Welcome to Victoria's Chinatown. Welcome to Victoria's Chinatown. And you can find this website. Uh, I was also a major researcher for the website, Chinese Canadian Artifacts Project. And also you can use the title to find uh, this website. And, uh, I worked with uh, dozens of small museums in British Columbia. Uh, for the creation of this website. Uh, yeah, these are uh, some the major works I have done so far. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Chen, for sharing, especially your uh, research interests and also uh, the uh, community involvement and also some uh, cooperation with the museums. And then for our re uh, audience, if you're interested, I will be uh, including those website that Dr. Chen mentioned in the show notes. So you will be able to access the website from there as well. And uh, so with that, um, we want to sort of, uh, we are interested in knowing how did you start this uh, book project? This is about the Chinese uh, in the North America and also their political activism. Uh, okay. I first became interested in the subject of this book uh, after I arrived in the University of Hawaii as a doctoral student in 1990, because Sun Yat-sen, uh, the father of Republican China, uh, started the Republican Revolution from Honolulu in 1894. Uh, I also became interested in the subject after I began to teach at the University of Victoria in Western Canada in 2002, uh, because Conway, a major agitator for the first but a failed political reform in modern China in 1898, uh, restarted his political reforms overseas among the worldwide Chinese communities from this Canadian city, Victoria, in 1899. Uh, he established the Chinese Empire Reform Association, or the title in Chinese, Bao Huanghui, or the Society to Protect the, the Emperor in Victoria in July 1899. And this organization later developed more than 200 branches among the Chinese communities in North America, South America, Asia, Australia, and even Africa and it became the truly first global Chinese political party, although his moment declined one decade later. So what really allowed my interest in the book project 
was my preliminary research on the political assassination of Tang Hualong, a late Qing reformer and an important statesman of early Republican China in Victoria in 1918. Uh, later, I found that this assassination in Victoria in 1918 was linked with another political murder of a highly influential famous Chinese journalist in San Francisco in 1915. Uh, I was also surprised to find that the first Chinese women's political organization in thousand years of Chinese history actually started from Victoria in 1903 and then spread to nearly a thousand Canadian and American cities. Uh, moreover, Sun Yat-sen won support from the Chinese Freemasons in Victoria in early 1911 and then in other Canadian and American cities, including San Francisco, uh, which helped make him the first provisional president of Republican China in 1912. So all of these discoveries led me uh, to write this book that covers the political history of modern China, Chinese-American history, Chinese-Canadian history, and the history of the Chinese communities in the Pacific Rim between 1808 and 1918. In connection with the book project, uh, I conducted not only documentary research in many Chinese, Canadian, and American archives and libraries, uh, but also conducted field work in China five times in 2009, 2012, 2016, 2018, and 2019. And in many Canadian, and American cities and towns uh, <clears throat> in British Columbia, uh, in <clears throat> Montana, uh, in uh, Idaho, in Washington, <clears throat> and in uh, <clears throat> the three years in 2012, 2013, and 2016. Yeah. Thank you for sharing, and specifically the different field works and all the this like a uh, very interesting moment in the modern Chinese history that inspire you to start this book. And before we get to uh, talk about each of those interesting moments that you just mentioned in relation particularly to your chapters, um, we want to talk about this kind of like a, a framework for your analysis. And especially you use a network approach. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about what is network approach and how does this approach can help us better understand overseas Chinese communities? Okay, uh, network analysis developed uh, as a research approach by Western scholars from the mid 20th century. It originally focused on interpersonal relations among family members, clansmen, friends, native place of fellows, and so on. A leading scholar in network analysis is Dr. Mark Granovet, a professor in the Department of Sociology at the Stanford University. Uh, his most famous research is on social networks in job markets. In terms of job hunting strategy, uh, previous studies in network analysis assumed that you and your close friends and the relatives would form strong ties or networks. And such a strong ties or strong networks would provide the most closure help for you to find a job. But Dr. Granovich's research uh, makes a totally different argument. It reveals that the social networks of close friends and relatives with strong ties are too narrow and they could give you, give you only the limited and the repeated information about job opportunities in such a small uh, social network uh, among the people with strong ties. If one person know one job opportunity, everybody in the same circle will know that. And so that's why uh, he argued the weak ties, the weak ties or the loose networks among colleagues in working units and among members in social organizations 
would include more numerous and diverse people and would provide a person with a much richer information about many job opportunities through different channels. So this is uh, uh, his. Uh, this is his uh, <clears throat> classical study. It uh, is most cited in the network analysis <clears throat> in sociology. Uh, but my network approach is a little different from the conventional one. Uh, my network approach further argues that we should analyze both interpersonal and institutional relations rather than separate them because our personal relations among family members, friends, classmates, and colleagues are based on institutional arrangements, such as marriage, families, clubs, schools, working units, and so on. So thus, I argue that the strength and the significance of networks lie in their ability to develop from the interpersonal level to institutional level to expand through both interpersonal and institutional ties to bring increasingly different people and organization into interactions and to provide interactive dynamics for social and historical changes. Uh, this approach is useful for us to study overseas Chinese community because the Chinese at home and abroad do stress the importance of interpersonal ties, or in Chinese, called guanxi. Most Chinese migrants usually would use the kinship relation among family members or clansmen, the native place of fellowship among people from the same both places for migration to a specific foreign country or foreign city and for the search of job opportunities in job market. So this is what uh, sociologists call a chair migration. Uh, but the Chinese migrants also formed their clans, native place associations, and community organizations for mutual help, for collective protection. For example, in San Francisco, Chinatown, uh, Chinese migrants formed the so-called six companies or the six native place associations from 1850s for mutual help, for self-protection, and then they turned these six, circular six companies or six native and uh, dialect associations into the Chinese Consolidated Benevolent Association, or in Chinese, called Zhonghua Huiguan, in the 1880s. From 1898 to 1918, so the period covered by my, by my book, uh, the Chinese reforms and the revolutionaries in North America used both interpersonal and institutional relations to develop their political parties. So network approach became more useful for analysis of such uh, political organizations, including their, uh, both their interpersonal and institutional relations among the overseas Chinese. So that's why my book adopts this research approach. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, especially thinking about the uh, personal interaction, but also interpersonal and also uh, institutional ties that these uh, migrants have in different locations and also with their home as well. So with this network approach, and then this book has four different chapters. And let's start with the first one. And first one is particularly about Kang Youwei. And uh, so can you tell us a little bit about Kang Youwei's life and also uh, his activity in China as well as in North American Chinatowns? Uh, okay. Uh, Kang Youwei was the first and also the most influential political reformer in modern China. He lived between 1858 and 1927. 
and he was born to a Cantonese scholar official family in Nanhe County near today's Guangzhou, north of Hong Kong. Uh, starting from 1883, he had started the social reform in his home place. Uh, although the Chinese women at that time had to bind their feet and limit their activities to their home, uh, to their households, Kang really refused to bind the feet of his two daughters. And he even formed uh, an anti-food binding association to fight against these sexist customs. Uh, but Kang uh, became famous mainly because he promoted the first political reform of Qing government under the leadership of Emperor Guangxi in 1898. Although the reform lasted only for about 100 days, so that's why it was also called a, uh, the 100 Days Reform. So although the 1898 uh, political reform was suppressed by conservative faction in the Qing government, and the reforms the Emperor Guangxi was put under house arrest thereafter, Kuan uh, was able to flee from China, first to Hong Kong, then to Japan, and then to Canada in 1899. And then he used uh, his reform propaganda, uh, starting from Victoria, to mobilize Chinese Canadians into the reform for both China and Chinatowns. Uh, with support from Chinese community leaders in Western Canada, he formed the Chinese Empire Reform Association, or in Chinese called Bao Huanghui, the Society to Protect the Emperor in Victoria on July 20, 1899. So this reform association was a popular organization and it included at least one third of Chinese migrants in Canada by 1905. It was also the first truly global uh, political party of the Chinese across the Pacific Rim and had more than 200 branches in the world by 1908. Uh, it also developed a series of business ventures, uh, such as banks and commercial companies in Hong Kong, New York, and even a railway company in Mexico. Its capital reached about $2 million American dollars by that time. It also led a global Chinese boycott against American goods in protest against the racial discrimination against the Chinese in the United States in 1905. And that boycott forced the American President Roosevelt to order friendly treatment of Chinese passengers by American customers and American immigration authorities. Uh, moreover, in 1903, uh, Kanye second daughter, uh, Kang Tongbi, also came to Canada and launched a women's branch of this reforms association, the Chinese Empire Ladies Reform Association, or in Chinese, called Bao Huang Hui, or the Women's Society to protect the emperor. So this was really the first women's political association in Chinese history, and it later developed more than 10 chapters in Vancouver, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, and Honolulu, and, and other cities. So it promoted uh, the constitutional reform for women's rights in education and politics, and also rallied uh, the small number of Chinese women in North American Chinatowns for the first time. So this was the first Chinese women's political association because uh, before that time, before 1903, uh, like uh, in Chinese cities like Shanghai, uh, there also appeared women's associations. But the women's association in China, they mainly promote uh, uh, like women's uh, like education. And they were, uh, they were not really political association as the Chinese Empire Ladies Reform Association that started from Victoria in 1903. Okay.
Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, Kanye West uh, started as this uh, activist, this kind of intellectual who is leading the reform in China and also expanding that reform to the uh, firstly in Canada in from Victoria and then how the Chinese Empire Reform Association grow into more than 200 branches. And also, as you mentioned, specifically also has uh, the uh, Chinese Ladies uh, Association as well and that is developing more than 10 chapters as well. So with this, uh, to think about his activism, or I should specify reformist activism, and how that reformist activism expanded, uh, not just in Canada, but also in uh, United States and also beyond as well. But with this uh, expansion, and uh, around 1909, we started to see there are some decline as well. So this is the focus of your chapter two. Can you tell us a little bit about how and why did the uh, Reformist Association that expanded so quickly, but uh, later on declined? Okay. The Chinese Empire Reform Association started from Victoria in Western Canada in July 9, uh, 1899, and then it quickly expanded into the United States and other countries across the Pacific Rim for uh, a few reasons. First, Kanye Wei was a Cantonese from Guangdong province, and almost 99% of early Chinese migrants in the so-called New World, ranging from North America, South America, Hawaii, to Australia, were Cantonese people from the same province. So Kanye also claimed to be a former advisor to the reformed Emperor Guangxi in the 1898 reform of the Qing government, so that's why he used uh, not only his political prestige, but also his native place of uh, native place of fellowship to contact uh, the Cantonese migrants from Guangdong province to almost all the New World. So that kind of interpersonal relations among Cantonese migrants uh, in the New World certainly helped the expansion of his reformist organization. Uh, <clears throat> so that's why uh, most members of his organization uh, were Cantonese migrants. Uh, second, the Kaiwei's reformist association developed not only among uh, mostly Cantonese migrants in the circular New World, but also among the non-Cantonese non migrant uh, communities such as the Chinese communities in Southeast Asia, because in Southeast Asia, most Chinese migrants came from Fujian province uh, on the southeast coast uh, across Taiwan Strait. So they were not Cantonese. Most of them, most Chinese migrants in Southeast Asia were not Cantonese. But why they also joined the Kanyewe's organization? That happened because Kanyewe used the propaganda for patriotic and a progressive reform of both China and Chinatowns to attract Chinese migrants, urged them to struggle for reform and a modernization of their homeland to save not only the reforms the Emperor Guangxi and especially China from foreign invasion, but also to save overseas Chinese themselves from racial discrimination. So that kind of political propaganda mobilized overseas Chinese migrants to join his reformist association. Because Kanye's reformist association was called the Society to Protect the Emperor, it made a promise for awards with the staffs or even high official positions to its participants up to the successful rescue of the Guangxi Emperor and up to the success of the reformist cause. And that certainly also attract overseas Chinese migrants. Uh, the third reason was probably <clears throat> that the Kanye's Reformist Association uh, did not have stricter requirements for its members. Any Chinese migrants could just sign on the membership rules of this Reformist Association and become its members. At first, they were not even required to pay any membership fees. 
So thus, the reforms association was more like a loose social political networks rather than a, a strict political party. So that was also a reason for it a quicker uh, the quicker development at first and its quicker collapse later on. However, Kindwish Reforms Association declined by 1909 for more important reasons. Uh, previous studies always assumed that uh, <clears throat> this Reforms Association in North America was defeated by the Revolutionary Party led by Sun Yat-sen, uh, but my book proves that is not true because Sun Yat-sen's Revolutionary Association did not uh, really develop in North America until 1909. But by that time, the reforms movement had already declined. One major reason for the decline of the Reforms Association by 1909 uh, was uh, <clears throat> its original Chinese title was called Bao Huanghui, or the Society to Protect the Emperor. But the Guangxi Emperor was murdered by the conservative faction in 1908. And thus, this Reforms Association lost the emperor to be protected. But the more important reason was Kaiwei and the power struggles with overseas Chinese leaders of this association, especially the leaders from Los Angeles and Vancouver, uh, they competed for the control of the business ventures of this association in Hong Kong, Chicago, and Moscow. And that internal strife was a major reason for the decline of this reforms association by 1909. So my book has detailed discussion about such an internal strife and its negative impacts on the reforms movement. Yeah, mm. and specifically, yeah, you mentioned this kind of expansion with this uh, network connection. We have the Native Place Fellowship. Most of the uh, immigrants at that time were from uh, Guangdong, from South China. They are uh, Cantonese migrants, but also expanding to other non uh Guangdong migrants, for example, in Southeast Asia, and also how this association sort of uh, welcome all to join them. In the beginning, there's no membership requ uh, membership fee requires. But as you mentioned, um, before, uh, by 1909, we started to see the decline as the emperors already, their goal is to protect the emperor. But now the emperor already... Uh, murdered and we also see the internal divide within the association as well so um, as the association declined by 1909 we started to see another political activism another force of political activism in overseas uh, started to grow and develop and this is earlier you mentioned Sun Yat-sen's uh, revolutionary activities. So um, now we will be moving to chapter three and specifically to think about uh, how Sun Yat-sen and also his revolutionary fellows developed their own political association for the anti-Qing revolution in North America, Chinatown. And also uh, did uh, their activity overlap with the reformers uh, or how did they interact with each other? Uh, okay. Uh, previous studies have often stressed the political competitions and struggles between Sun Yat-sen's revolutionary parties and Kanye's reforms associations. Uh, but my book confirms that uh, and even reveals how the two political factions used violent assassinations to deal with each other. Uh, but my book mainly discusses how Sun Yat-sen's revolutionary parties had a personal, institutional, and ideological connections with the Kanye's reformist associations and movements, and how the revolutionary movement benefited from the reformist movement. Uh, Sun Yat-sen founded his first anti-Chin revolutionary organization, the Revived Chinese Society, or in Chinese, called Xing Songhui in Honolulu in 1894. And he later further established the Revolutionary Alliance, or in Chinese, called Tongmonghui, in Japan in 1905. His revived China society successfully developed two branches in San Francisco, the first one in 1896, 
and the second one in 1904. But these two branches, the two branches of his revolutionary organization, included only a few Chinese Christians and was short-lived. Uh, his revolution alliance first expanded to San Francisco and it developed a, a youth study society, or in Chinese called a Sonin Shuse, in July 1909. But the earliest trans-Pacific expansion of this revolution alliance from East Asia to North America relied on the help of a son from a reformed family in Victoria. Uh, Sun Yat-sen then arrived in North America near the end of 1909, and he established the first uh, American branch of the Revolution Alliance in New York. Uh, but uh, this first uh, American branch of his Revolution Alliance was uh, formed in the home of two former reformers leaders, and they also included uh, other former reformers as uh, its major leaders. In fact, Sun Yat-sen promoted the anti-Qing revolution movement uh, mainly through the Chinese Freemasons or the Triad Society in uh, Cantonese called Qigong Tong in North America, in Mandarin uh, called Gong Tang. Uh, as my book shows, uh, he at first followed the reformers to join the Triad Society in Honolulu in 1904, and then took over a radical reformer's mission to reform and mobilize this secret society in the United States. But he was not uh, successful until early 1911. It actually was another revolution leader, Feng Ziyu, who successfully mobilized the Chinese Freemasons or the Trial Society first in Canada and then in the United States in 1910 and 1911. Uh, so Feng Ziyu uh, greatly helped Sun Yat-sen win uh, the support from this secret society in North America just before the Republican Revolution happened in Central China on October 10th, 1911. Uh, but just remember, Feng was also from a reformed family in Japan, from Yokohama. And Feng himself was a reformer himself before. So thus, the reforms the movement actually helped Sun Yat-sen's revolutionary movement in North America. So according to the research by some leading American scholars, even the Republican Revolution in China around 1911 uh, was mainly led by domestic reformers. These domestic reforms became frustrated with the sham reform of the Qing government. They turned to the revolution. So Sun Yat-sen and his revolutionary parties were not a major leading force in the Republican Revolution around 1911. The simple fact is Sun Yat-sen, when the Republican Revolution started from Central China, from Wuchang on October 10th, 1911, Sun Yat-sen was not in China. He actually was traveling in the United States, in Denver, in Colorado, and after that, even he heard the outbreak of the revolution moment in China, he did not go back. He continued his travel to east coast of the United States, and then went to Europe. He did not actually go back to China until December 25, the Christmas day of 1911. By that time, the revolution in China already succeeded in southern China. So, so. So that's why uh, so some leading American scholars believe it was mainly the domestic reformers. They actually were major leading force uh, in the Republican Revolution around 1911. And certainly Sun Yat-sen's party still played a leading role in some places of China, like Shanghai, and uh, Sun Yat-sen's uh, Revolution Party did play a leading role there. But in most uh, uh, provinces of China, the reformers actually were more important in the revolution movement. Uh, although Sun Yat-sen uh, did become the first provisional president of Republican China uh, for some specific reasons. 
Yeah, and it's uh, very interesting to know, to think about the reformists, their involvement, and to some degree also participation in the revolutionary activities, how they engage and interact with the revolutionary parties and also their project and their uh, action as well. And um, so uh, we have um, the two different kinds of parties. One is a reformist and one is revolutionary. But now, uh, after 1911, that is the fall of the Qin Dynasty, when the Republican Revolution, they eventually uh, seceded. So what happened to the Chinese people in the United States, and especially those reformers and revolutionaries uh, after the fall of the Qin Dynasty, what happened to them um, in China and also in North American Chinatowns? Uh, okay. Yeah, many previous studies assert that uh, the reforms of the moment basically failed before the 1911 Republican Revolution in China. And the reforms on Beijing totally uh, was defeated and de disappeared. But actually, that is not true. After the 1911 revolution, uh, reforms association uh, did not totally disappear. Uh, it does still keep at least 98 branches in Canada and the United States after 1911. And it had a total of 124 branches among overseas Chinese communities in the world. Leading reformers like Kang Yiwei and his chief disciple, Liang Qishou, they were still active in early Republican politics. And their political parties were still influential at home and abroad. Uh, but the reformers and their parties mainly worked with the military leaders or the future warlords in their fight against the revolutionary parties under the 20th century leadership. Uh, but their partnership with ambitious military strongmen or warlords would lead to their political failure. Uh, for example, Kanye we worked with one senior warlord and tried to restore the last emperor of Qing China to power in 1917. But this imperial restoration lasted only for 12 days, and then Kanye became a notorious politician thereafter. Uh, by contrast, uh, Sun Yat-sen uh, became the provisional president of Republic of China only for a short while in early 1912. And he quickly lost the power to the military strongman Yuan Shikai, and then became a political fugitive in Japan again until mid-1916. Uh, Sun Yat-sen and his parties uh, did not play major rules in the domestic politics in early Republican period, especially in the two fights against the imperial restoration. Uh, <clears throat> so, but Sun uh, Yat-sen, finally could have defeated his political enemies, including the former Latin reformers, uh, mainly because he continuously, passionately built his uh, Chinese Revolutionary Party or the Chinese National League, uh, Chinese National League or in Chinese called Kuomintang uh, as a strong partisan force. And his party would finally become the ruling party in China in the future and also achieve hegemony among the overseas Chinese communities. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, to think about what happened after 1911, especially how these uh, different political activities and also their uh, political vision develop and transform. It's very interesting, specifically to think about the, uh, the, uh, the critical changing moment in modern Chinese history. So mm -hmm. with that, we talk about the four chapters, and uh, we are just wondering that uh, any materials that uh, didn't get to be included in the book or uh, anything that you find most unexpected, uh, the uh, surprising material that you encounter in writing this book? Uh, yeah. Uh, as I said before, I originally became interested in the police assassination of Tang Hua Long in Victoria in 1918. And at first, I tried to write a book, a bestseller on this case, and even took a trip to visit the home place of Tang Hua Long and the home place of Assassin in China in 2009. 
Uh, but uh, when I went to uh, to field work at uh, the Library and Archives Canada in Ottawa in 2012, I found that the investigative uh, the, the police investigative files regarding assassination in the archives of the Ministry of Justice of the Canadian government was taken away by somebody. So the archive folder was empty. Uh, so I could not find enough, you know, archive information uh, regarding this assassination case. But I found a lot of materials regarding Kang Yui and Sun Yat-sen in the Library and Archives Canada. Uh, that partly is the reason for me to expand the book project from its early focus on Kang Walong's assassination to the long-term political history of Chinese reform and revolution in North America from 1808 to 1918, uh, because this political assassination was just one result of the political struggles between the two political factions. So that's why the detailed discussion about this political assassination became uh, the last section of last chapter of my book. Yeah. Yeah, I hope that, um, you know, uh, one day we will be able to restore those missing files, missing information, especially as you mentioned, to think about how those uh, uh, violent action and violent resource, that's uh, assassination during that period of time, and how that kind of shape the uh, Republican China, and also the different uh, power struggle, the internal divide within the government as well mm -hmm. and so with that um now uh finishing this wonderful book and we're interesting to know um what you're working on right now and what would you uh what will be your next project uh, in fact uh, after the publication uh, of my uh, uh, the new book uh, transfer secret reform and the revolution uh, i have just uh, completed a new book uh, manuscript and its title is The Trans-Pacific Chinese Diaspora from China to Canada and Beyond, uh, 1788 to 1898. So this book covers not only the early Chinese migration history in Canada, but also in the United States. And many people assume that the larger scale Chinese migration to North America started after the outbreak of the Gold Rush in California. Uh, from 1848, and then in British Columbia from 1848. Uh, but my new book, a Manuscript, reveals that the Chinese from Fujian province, uh, that is on southeast coast of China near Taiwan. So the people from Fujian province had already migrated to the Philippines. And from there, they further migrated from Manila to Mexico before 1815. But the larger scale of direct migration from China to North America really started from three groups of about 165 Chinese who engaged in the British and American merchants' food trade in today's Western Canada in 1878 to 79. So my new book basically traces the Chinese history in North America, mainly to these three groups of people, including the oldest Chinese. The first Chinese in Hawaii actually also was a member of this group, and he stayed in Hawaii from 1879. So my new book also discusses how the Canonese people from Guangdong province expanded their golden mine activities from California to Canada. Uh, through the organized migration of Chinese laborers by motion companies, and how they, have, they first helped build the Central Pacific Railroad in the American West uh, in 1863-69, and then joined the construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway from 1880 to 1885. Uh, they also launched the community reforms from San Francisco to Chinatown to Victoria's Chinatown in the early 1880s, uh, they established their community organizations, uh, such as the Chinese Consolidated Benevolent Association, or Zhonghua Huiguan, in San Francisco, in Portland, in Victoria, 
and used this kind of Western-style organization to fight against uh, racial discrimination and to also to fight some internal uh, uh, device inside the Chinese community. So this uh, book project right now has been uh, completed and is under review uh, by one press. Uh, but uh, apart from that, uh, I also received a five-year of federal grant from the Social Sciences and Humanity Research Council of Canada to work on the environmental history of China during the later Ice Age from 1400 to 1900. And that will be my major research project in the next few years. Uh, because as you know, uh, the late Ice Age actually was not a favorable uh, period for Chinese history uh, because uh, the weather became uh, uh, unfavorable to agriculture, uh, especially for the you know, economic development of the Chinese agriculture empire. Uh, but uh, in face of this kind of unfavorable uh, weather condition and in <clears throat> the more frequent natural disaster uh, like uh, the floods and especially droughts, and but China actually uh, developed as one of the most advanced countries with the most advanced agricultural economy in the world <clears throat> uh, up to 1400. And uh, <clears throat> Chinese population also reached the highest level uh, in this period. So my book tried to explain, uh, you know, why China uh, still could uh, agricultural economy in China uh, still could develop and even reach the zenith uh, during under this kind of unfavorable uh, climatic condition. And uh, hopefully this book could help us to learn historical lessons and experience for us to fight against uh, you know, environmental, uh, the unfavorable environmental change uh, today, the global warming. Okay. Wow, both sounds great projects. And then we look forward to reading more of your work in near future. And uh, I want to thank you, Dr. Chen, for being on the show today. I really enjoy our conversation. Uh, you're welcome. And also thank you. And I also want to thank you, our audience, for staying with us till the end. I hope everyone is taking good care, staying safe. See you guys next time. Goodbye.